You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Do you think it's possible for Australia to hit our Paris targets while being top five power stations? We're going to meet and beat them. We're going to meet and beat them. And we're going to keep running the country. And we're going to keep running mines. If you've been tuning in to Australian politics in the last five years, you've probably heard a lot of this kind of rhetoric around the climate crisis. Speaker, this is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. Treasurer, the Treasurer knows the rule on crops. It's coal. After almost a decade in power, the Coalition have left a legacy of negligence and inaction in the face of an ecological catastrophe. But one climate policy has remained a staple. Carbon offsetting. The idea that if we take enough carbon out of the atmosphere through planting trees and storing carbon, then we can avoid the worst impacts of climate change. I'm Jacob Gamble, broadcasting from the studios of 3CR Community Radio on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Nam, Melbourne. Today on Earth Matters... Australia's carbon credit conundrum, another tool for greenwashing or a necessary step in the slow march to net zero. My name's Mark Whitten. I'm the principal and manager of Jigsaw Farms. We are located in southwest Victoria, just on the um, southwest side of the Grampians. We have about 8,500 acres in uh, made up of Six farms. Mark Wooten is a wool, beef and lamb farmer and a former chair of the Climate Institute. His farms are considered a carbon offset success story, reaching carbon neutrality between 2009 and 2014. We've planted over a million trees on the farms um, and of those half are agroforestry, so for high value saw logs, and the other half are for permanent revegetation. Um, particularly focused on improving biodiversity outcomes. So as a, as a sort of a broad reach, in, we started in 1996, and um, at that point we had 46 bird species on the farm, and now we have 174. So we've had a dramatic change just as an indicator species going on there. Um, we've been involved in two significant peer-reviewed um, uh, carbon studies through Melbourne University of our carbon footprint and what we do with the trees. And we've just recently finished our second long-term study there, which is where we were carbon neutral, but we are now longer carbon neutral, which is for some of your listeners will be, well, how can they do that? Well, it's to do with our stocking rates have stayed the same and we've got more efficiency on our livestock operation. For example, our fecunditary levels are much higher. So we have a lot more lands per ewe or more calves per cow. So that's very carbon efficient. And um, we finish them quicker, they mature quicker, which is good. But unfortunately, the trees, as they get older, um, slow down in their um, carbon sequestration. So the maturation stage, as they call it, means that we don't actually um, do the, um, we're not taking as many greenhouse gases is what we were in previous years. So we've now fallen out of being carbon neutral, um, which is a real challenge for us, to be honest with you. And we're trying to grapple with what we do there. We've never sold carbon credits off farm. We've kept them all for our own purposes 
or to insert to offset our own carbon footprint. Um, and to be honest with you, I'm very dubious a lot of the carbon schemes that are out in the wider uh, rural space at the moment. Do you think many of your uh, farming colleagues also have these sorts of initiatives where they're trying to make their farms carbon neutral? Or are you more of an outlier in that space? Jacob, if I was going to be honest, I think we, we were outliers. I think it, the tide has really turned, though. Um, I, I went to the last COP and spoke on behalf of the Australian Forestry Products Association and the NFF and a number of forums, mainly third world groups. And the, the, the awareness in this space of need for doing action is universal in now in third world rural communities. But it, even within Australia, I think with Meat and Livestock Australia committing to carbon neutrality by 2030 and a number of the um, commercial players in the food space um, also making claims that they're trying to get there. Um, that's made farmers take notice that they need to get their act together on farms. So we, we would have, in the past, if we had farms and land care groups come through the farms, which we regularly did, there would be probably some cynicism within the group, nearly age, predominantly age-based and gender-based. So it would be a lot of old men who used to try to throw brickbats at me about climate change. Those groups that come through now, there's very few dissent. I mean, people are just saying, okay, we've got a problem, what are we going to do about it now? So we were outliers at the beginning, but I suspect now we're, we're very much, much more mainstream. Financially, how does carbon offsetting stack up for you? Is it a profitable venture? The motivation has been the environmental outcomes have been very positive. We, we made a decision that we didn't want to have a heavier footprint than we needed to on the farms from a very early stage. So that would have been one of our key motivators. We're now reaching a point where the private sector is rewarding people like ourselves for carbon or low carbon products, not necessarily carbon neutral products. So there are some commercial players like Coles who have a carbon neutral beef product. So we can enter into those markets if we wish. So that would be a financial incentive um, the other one we could have done, which we didn't do, would be to actually sell our uh, carbon um, offsets into um, secondary markets for other polluting industries to buy if we wish to, but we would in effect be not be helping our own carbon neutrality by doing that because you've sold them, you can only have them used once. It's not like a multi... Um, it's, I always explain to farmers, you can only sell your barley once, you can't keep selling it to third parties a number of times. There's only one thing to sell. So, but long-term wise, um, my advice to farmers, and I speak to regularly to a lot of them, is that you keep your carbon credits on farm for your own purposes, because there'll be a lot more expectation in the future for people wanting to eat you know, a low carbon product, whether it's a meat or a, a fiber or a grain. Um, and therefore, it would be wise to keep them in your own, um, uh, on your, within your own farm um, system. The option for farmers to sell carbon offsets is all part of a scheme run by the federal government called the Climate Solutions Fund. If you're a business with a project that is taking carbon out of the atmosphere, 
you can apply to transfer your offsets into carbon credit units, kind of like shares you would buy and sell in the stock market. You can keep the units for yourself, sell them to the government, or sell to a private corporation who can then use them in their own offsetting endeavours. With our Fly Carbon Neutral program, you can easily offset your share of unavoidable flight emissions for less than you'd think when you book your flights via our website or at Qantas.com forward slash environment. And we want to be one of those leading companies, which is why Shell's target is to become a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner. Mark is pretty sceptical about the carbon market. Carbon offsets on farm will be part of the solution, but probably, to be honest with you, long-term-wise, will also have limitations because they'll be like us where our soil carbons are now as high as we can get them to, so we get no acknowledgement of that in our last um, uh, carbon um, study. And um, our trees as they mature are slowing down, so we'll get less of that. So we need to have other other things, and whether that's food feed additives or changing methane behaviours in stomachs of cows and sheep is the next thing there, but it's not there yet. So there is a challenge for the ag industry at the moment. I mean, the, the offsetting thing is, um, if it's legitimate, the, is only going to be a transitional thing. It's going to allow you to get the, your, your act together in other places or to change what you do on farm. And for some people, that will be producing, you know, a high quality protein like we do now in a lower carbon environment. And for others, it may mean they can't do it. I mean, we might have to change what we do and consumers might have to change how much they eat if they eat red meats or dairy products or what they do. Um, at the moment, we're pushing pretty hard to get it more efficient going forward. Um, the the other one, which is, is it's quite sobering, is in broad numbers, most carbon offsets schemes in Australia there's a few tree projects that do it at the moment, but, you know, that's probably 2% of the what's been sold as carbon offset. The great white hope where these um, slick um, aggregators have come in and uh, have uh, um, commercialised and not paid necessarily the Indigenous people or the farmers particularly high amount of money for what they've done and not produced... Um, genuine offsets to what they're doing. I don't. I talk about the carbon myth industry or CMI for short, um, because that's what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a quite a fraudulent industry, which unfortunately, I think um, we're going to have more of it coming forward as people don't want to change what they do on a farm level, as a energy level for the you know gas producers or coal producers. I think we've got some really fundamental issues that the the, the carbon market needs not. It needs some really rigorous attention given to it if it's going to be used as, as they propose to use it. And for industries like ourselves, we have to use it. We're not in a position to produce what we do unless we use offsets. So I'm not anti-offsets. I'm anti-fraudulent offsets, which unfortunately, both within Australia and internationally, is, is, is what they are. Outside of offsetting, what role do you see for farmers as Australia pushes towards net zero? Well, I think it's going to be partly about innovation and and uh, and and there will be some technologies that we, we're not aware of now coming forward. The Great White Hope 20 years ago for us was soil carbons. Um, but in an Australian context where you have 
if you've got predominantly, which is our system, a perennial-based system, so permanent pasture, once you protect that um, loss of vegetation by keeping by nature the, 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 the ground cover there the whole time, your soil carbons again reach a, a, a point in our context, in our soil type and rainfall, about 3.5% to 4%, and we can't move it beyond that needle, beyond that point. And that was the where where that's that's quite sobering. Although you should do it because you, it's really good for your soils and you produce more grass. There's lots of reasons to do it which are not related to storing carbon or, or for climate change. But then the rest of the thing is is we'll need to have some serious um, technology change. I mean, at the moment, if you do best practice at, um, livestock producing, you will probably save twenty to thirty percent of lowering your carbon footprint if you get the genetics right and you get, you know, more lambs and calves surviving and you have more twins and all of those things which drive down that carbon footprint. But beyond that, you need to either do a lot of offsets or you need to hope that we can change the, the ruminant behaviour of that animal by using a, a supplementary feed, whether it's one of these seaweed-based ones or alternatives. Um, and with that becomes high cost, you know. So it's a challenge. I mean, that is going to be the challenge for the agricultural industry is how do we do it, particularly with ruminant behaviours. A lot easier for croppers, a lot easier for horticulture. Um, so it's not, I'm not, it's not all doom. <laughs> there are possibilities there. Um, I mean, we still do what we do and we're still working pretty hard at it and we've got a pretty low carbon footprint. But are we zero? No, we're not. <laughs> That was Mark Wooten speaking on carbon-neutral farming. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. But one of Australia's leading authorities is blowing the whistle on these schemes. An environmental market without integrity is not an environmental market, it's a rort. And I feel that Australia's carbon market is just that. It's degenerated to become a rort. In March 2022, Andrew McIntosh, an ANU professor who worked on the integrity of Australia's carbon credits, delivered a shock announcement that Australia's carbon credit system was a fraud. Somewhere in the order of 70 to 80% of the credits that are being issued are markedly low in integrity. McIntosh's claims add weight to calls from a growing number of organisations for an overhaul of the government's carbon credit scheme. My name is Annika Shu. I'm the Australian Conservation Foundation's lead environmental investigator, so I head up our investigations team. Annika Shu wrote a report alongside the Australia Institute calling into question a carbon offsets method known as avoided deforestation, which pays landowners for not clearing trees they had permits to clear. It awards carbon credits for essentially landholders not clearing what they were going to clear. It's one of those weird situations where you um, have to imagine a counterfactual scenario and the, um, the carbon credits are awarded based on the likelihood that something else would have happened. So it's, it's an exercise in imagination. Um, and our analysis looked at what, um, if it was possible for that counterfactual scenario to play out, right? Um, and it turns out that there are just not enough bulldozers in New South Wales to have cleared 
the amount of trees that are um, ostensibly being protected by this method. In fact, clearing methods would have to be increased by 750 to 12,000% of the background clearing rates. So essentially, these carbon credits are being awarded for farmers not doing something they were never going to do. And um, the trees that were there 30 years ago are still there, but now they're making millions of dollars. Paying someone to not do something feels counterproductive to the goal of reducing emissions. From an environmental standpoint, how does this stack up? In a sense, environmentally, it's it, it's argued to be doing something. And, and people who promote the carbon market and promote this method will say, how could you ask for this method to be revoked? What we're doing is protecting forests. Mm. Um, but I would argue those forests don't need protecting because they're not going anywhere. And um, there's no extra carbon being abated or sequestered in this process at all. Mm-hmm. And how about, you know, the the rare few revegetation projects that happen under this government scheme? I mean, do they do a whole lot to stop carbon from going into the atmosphere? No. Um, Unfortunately, it would be great if they did, but um, 70 to 80% of the regeneration projects are, are basically fraudulent sham credits. You have examples where people are being paid to grow a forest and there was always a forest there, so nothing's being grown, or people are being paid to um, grow a forest and there's never going to be a forest there. It's just barren land and nothing has changed. Hmm. And there are folks where forest is emerging on the property, but it has nothing to do with what they're doing on their property. It's just um, a direct function of rainfall, and the method excludes the consideration of rainfall as a variable which seems pretty wild when you think about the way that plants grow. Anyone with a garden or even indoor plants would know that watering plants tends to help them. Um, And basically, farmers are getting paid for incidental rain. What do you see as some of the major shortcomings um, of offsetting in general as a strategy in addressing climate change? We are never going to offset our way to net zero. I think that's the most important thing that folks need to know from the outset. We, it is not going to encourage decarbonisation. It is going to be a band-aid slapped onto a huge problem that requires an industrial revolution. We need coal mines to shut down. We need existing industrial facilities to do way more than they're doing uh, with, with emissions. And there are solutions ready to go, but they're slightly more extensive than purchasing carbon offsets. So in a way, the ability to purchase carbon offsets is cheaper, quicker. It, it does the job. You can say you're net zero, but it is in fact slowing down the material carbon action that needs to happen if we're going to genuinely decarbonize as an economy and if we're going to gen- genuinely reach net zero. Hmm. So if, these, if this strategy is really ineffective, why do you think governments and corporations invest so much in it? I think the reason corporations invest in it is obvious. It's the reason corporations invest in anything. It's the bottom line. They can make a profit. It's relatively easy to do. Um, I think for governments, it's quite a simple way of acquitting your carbon obligations. You've got um, a ledger. There's emissions out. There's emissions in. Tick. We're done. We don't have to ask anything hard of um, huge donors. We don't have to ask anything hard of big political players. 
um, you know, the, the mining industry has a big hold on Australian politics on both sides of politics. And um, you'll see actually with donations data coming out very soon that uh, Woodside, Santos, a lot of the big mining companies donate to both sides of politics and it's a huge problem. I think um, people know where their bread is buttered. That goes for government and companies. And I think the, the industrial revolution that's really required to decarbonize is a little um, beyond the imagination of some, to be honest. When VoteCamp has asked what the most important issue is for voters at this election, more Australians singled out climate change than any other issue. 29% of Australians said climate change was their number one concern. We saw last year, um, at least in Victoria, there was a state election and there was also a federal election where many people voted in favour um, of parties with strong climate policies. Do you think in the eyes of the voter and politically, um, does carbon offsetting stack up? Are voters buying into it? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think for the clued in voter, they don't stack up. But I think that people are really busy. They're worried about their families. They're worried about their jobs. Um, they're worried about the cost of living and their mortgages. And they might read the occasional headline about the carbon market. And there was recently a review undertaken um, by the Bowen government, by the Bowen Ministry. Um, Chris Bowen asked an ex um, head scientist, Ian Chubb to undertake a review of carbon credits with a view to addressing all of the issues that have been raised by um, my organisation, countless others and researchers. And that review was meant to sort of um, take this all head on and deal with it and show that, um, you know, Bowen's climate department was a serious one that was going to tackle this issue head on. Unfortunately, the review has has released findings without citing any science, without a single reference, essentially stating that everything is fine. Um, and the issues that have been raised by countless scientists are just um, a problem of transparency, a problem of a lack of access to the data. And that is deeply disturbing because the, the headline for folks who are very busy and care about climate change but also care about a lot of other things mm -hmm. is nothing to see here. You can trust us on offsets moving on. And and people like me are left to do interviews like this to try and explain to folks that that's just not the case. And unfortunately, um, we've got a case of politics attempting to wash away an issue of science. After Professor McIntosh blew the whistle on the carbon market, an independent review, the Chubb Review, was set up to assess the credibility of the Australian Carbon Credit Scheme. The results were released in January, with recommendations for a new integrity body and clearer standards for what counts as a carbon credit, including no new avoided deforestation projects. But some have criticised the review for failing to touch on the key issue, that carbon offsets aren't delivering genuine reductions in greenhouse gases. What do you think the report says uh, about the, the direction of the new Albanese government with these sort of neoliberal market-based uh, solutions? Yeah, I think it is essentially a rebadging of a policy of Greg Hunt's from long ago. So all, all the Trump review is doing and, and all the safeguard mechanism reforms are doing is restoring 
those two policies to their former glory of 2015. And we all know that's not a particularly ambitious time for climate change in Australia. It's post-climate wars. It's Tony Abbott. He, he got in off the back of fighting a, a carbon tax. Um, so, you know, this is the this is how far the needle has shifted in climate politics in Australia, that you've got Labor who tend to be centre or left of centre starting to adopt climate policies that are probably more on the right side or um, certainly a, a right policy for 2014-2015. Um, I think they are in the unfortunate position of having to hedge a little. I don't think they want to upset anyone and so they're trying to sort of make the perfect policy that upsets everyone equally and um, gets over the line. And I can understand that. You've got cross benches from across the spectrum. It's going to be difficult to get buy-in for um, virtually anything. And you've got Peter Dutton on the other side of the line who's probably going to torpedo whatever they try and bring up because climate wars seem to work for the coalition. Mm. So in terms of, um, you know, I can see for Labor, it's uh, they need – to get this through and it's more of a political achievement for them than necessarily addressing the science of climate change. Um, but yes, I, I would agree with you. Market-based mechanisms, I think we can do better than that. I, and I think we've seen time and time again that market-based mechanisms don't work and governments rely on things getting more expensive until they get too expensive and companies get angry and then government intervenes in the market, which is weirdly a socialist thing to do and changes the price of a carbon credit or changes the price of a biodiversity offset or whatever it is. And in fact, Angus Taylor did that. Um, shortly before the election, Angus Taylor intervened in the carbon market because it was getting too expensive and made, the, made huge changes, sweeping changes that would make carbon credits cheaper. And when you think about how much market pundits will say when things get expensive the market will decide well that was the moment where the market was going to decide right and companies like chevron were going to have to slow down their gorgon project which emits 10 million you know between 8 to 10 million tons of carbon a year to acquit those emissions they were going to have to spend so much money that it would not be commercial for them and this is theoretically where the market mechanism hits the road, but in practice, it doesn't. It just doesn't. Thank you to Mark and Annika for their time. And thank you to the Community Radio Network and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support of this program. I'm Jacob Gamble. Tune in for another episode of Earth Matters at the same time next week.